Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Back up, please. Unrecord. We we are going to be reading. Oh, yes. Sorry, guys. It is. We do need to record the reading. Okay. Today's date is March 5th of 2023. We will be reading the big book of AA, page 26, paragraph starting, A Certain American Businessman. And we will go all the way up to and including page 28, where it says, here was the terrible dilemma. Our reader, our reader today will be Ellie, and then she'll be followed by a 20-minute speaker, Kimji. So Ellie, if you want to go ahead and start the reading, please. Hey, good morning. My name's Ellie, and I'm grateful to be here today and to be of service. Okay, a certain American businessman had ability, good sense, and high character. For years, he had floundered from one sanitarium to another. He had consulted the best-known American psychiatrist, and then he had gone to Europe, placed himself in the care of a celebrated physician, the psychiatrist, Dr. Jung, who who prescribed for him. Um, though experience had made him skeptical, he finished his treatment with um, unusual confidence. His physical and mental condition were unusually good. Above all, he believed that he had acquired such profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind and its hidden springs that relapse was unthinkable. Nevertheless, he was drunk in a short time. More baffling still, he could give himself no satisfactory explanation for his fall. So he returned to this doctor whom he admired and asked him point blank why he could not recover. He wished above all things to regain self-control. He seemed quite rational and well-balanced with respect to other problems, yet he had no control whatsoever over alcohol. Why was this? He begged the doctor to tell him the whole truth and he got it. In the doctor's judgment, he was utterly hopeless. He could never again regain, he could never regain his position in society and would have to be placed himself under lock and key or hire a bodyguard if he expected to live long. That was the great physician's opinion. But this man still lives and is a free man. He does not need a bodyguard, nor is he confined. He can go anywhere on this earth where other free men may go without despair, without disaster provided. He remains willing to maintain a certain simple attitude. Some of our um, alcoholic readers may think that they can do without spiritual help. Let us tell you the rest of this conversation our friend had with his doctor. The doctor said, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I have never seen one single case recover where that state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed on him with a clang. He said to the doctor, is there no exception? Yes, the doctor said there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. To me, these these occurrences are phenomena. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacement or and rearrangements, ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly 
cast to one side and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to um, dominate them. In fact, I have been trying to pr produce um, some such emotional rearrangements within you. With many individuals, the methods which I employ are successful, but I have never been successful with an alcoholic of your description. Upon hearing this, our friend was somewhat relieved, for he reflected that after all, he was a good church member. This hope, however, was destroyed by the doctors telling him that while his religious convictions were very good, in his case, they did not spell the necessary vital spiritual experience. Here was the terrible dilemma in which our friend found himself when he had the extraordinary experience which we have already told you made him a free man. And then did you read the next paragraph the, at the top of the next? Are we in turn? Or did you? She finished it, Marla. It was good. Okay. Yeah, I thought so. Thank you. Sorry, uh, Ellie. That's okay. You're our speaker, please. Do you want to be timed at all, Kim, or no? I've got a little timer here. <laughs> okay. Kim G, take it away. All right, I will hit the OK button. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Kim G, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater from the South Jersey Intergroup. Um, I've been in OA since 1994, and um, I've been abstinent and recovered since January 2011. Um, my top weight, I don't use pounds because who the hell gets on a scale when you get to a certain weight, but my top size was a size 24. Um, and I was diagnosed morbidly obese by my doctor in my early twenties. Um, but I've also in Overeaters Anonymous got down to a size two where one time I was in a mall and I screamed at someone because they, my size twos were getting large, too big, and I needed to get a size zero and they didn't cover a zero. And I totally flipped out. Um, and I've also been the size I am now, which is a size 10 binging and purging and over-exercising. So I have done research in all areas of this disease. Um, and you can see there's a big difference from when I joined to when I became recovered. And um, the way that I, I often explain that is for the first 17 years in OA, what I did is I put the food down and I fought the disease with everything I had. I went to meetings and sponsors and phone calls and all the tools trying to control the disease. And what would happen is I would get KO'd every single time. It was like getting in the ring with Mike Tyson. There was just no, I had no ability to fight it. But what happened um, 12 years ago is I put down the food and I faced the solution and I ran at it with everything I had. I did phone calls and I went to meetings and I got sponsors and I did literature. I did all the tools, but it was focused on step work. It was focused on the solution as opposed to trying to control the problem. And that is what this chapter is called, right? Is there is a solution. So the question is, do you want the solution? And they're going to tell us specifically and precisely how to get that solution. Um, so I'm a math person. So just, you know, like I look at the, at the big book and the doctor's opinion through working with others is the 12 steps and literally half of it, doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there's a solution more about alcoholism, which is 53 pages is all on step one. That's how important it is. Why do I care what the solution is if I don't think I have the problem? You know, if, if in my, if in my house, I, my, my, you know, my, uh, my tub overflows or my toilet overflows, I don't call an electrician, right? An electrician is a great solution, but not if you have a plumbing problem. So I have to know what my problem is. So I know what my solution is. 
So before we start on these pages, let's go over what have we learned so far in this big book. So in the doctor's opinion, we get the medical diagnosis. I am a compulsive overeater. If I can, not if I have an allergy to the body, the mental twist. The clearest explanation I ever heard was a gentleman, Sandy B, who said, I am a, he's an alcoholic, but I am an alcoholic if I cannot eat safely and I cannot be abstinent contently. Not eat safely means I have an allergy of the body that once I ingest certain substances, I get a phenomenon of craving. Biological function will never change. But the larger aspect is even when I have that food down for any period of time, which I had many times, I've gotten abstinent hundreds of times. I've gotten down to goal weight dozens of times. Why couldn't I stay there? Because I can't be abstinent contently. I get restless. I get irritable. I get discontent. That's the medical diagnosis. If you're a type described in this book, then we get into Bill's story. Bill's story says, well, what does that look like? Tell me, I love how the big book does. Here's the explanation and let me give you an example. So the explanation of allergy to the body mental twist is doctor's opinion. Bill's story is what does it look like in a human being? And I was taught two ways to approach that story. One, do I eat like Bill drank? Do I think like Bill thought? And do I feel like Bill felt? And the second was, do I identify in with the progression from fun and excitement to oblivion to um, totally out of control? Do I get that progression? And then we got into this chapter. There's a solution. What have we studied the last couple of weeks? For me, the um, understanding I have the disease, which I call the 10%, because doctors have picked the doctor. Silkworth said he only estimated about 10% of the patients who came into the hospital actually had this allergy to the body and mental twist. I have to be convinced I'm part of that 10%. But what am I taught in this chapter? I'm taught about the 90%. Diets do work. Decrease your calories, increase your exercise. That will work if you're not a compulsive overreader of the type described in this book. So I have to be convinced I'm not part of that 90%. I'm not somebody that can go to the local diet program and, and be okay. I'm not the person who can join the gym and just be okay. And then last week, we actually talked about what was the solution. And the solution is the step work. So now that we have that explanation, what we're going to study today is what does that look like in a human being? So this certain American businessman, just to give you a little bit of history, this is a gentleman named Roland Hazard. Remember this, is, I, I just love this. This is during the Great Depression. Okay. So at this time, people, it's a 25% unemployment rate. People are waiting in bread lines. People are suffering. But Roland Hazard he comes from a family with money, political money, old money. He has access to everything. His parents love him. They will do anything to help their child. They exhaust every imaginable thing in the United States. They, at one point, they even paid for someone to be with his, their kid in a deserted island so he wouldn't drink. And he drank the day he came back from the island. You know, I always think of, I can't remember the name of the show. I think it was Celebrity Rehab or something with a Dr. Drew. And they always had these called these sober companions. They probably still have them today where the rich people will pay someone to walk around with their kids so they don't do drugs or don't drink. They were trying that in the 30s, right? So he, he had access to everything. And they got, they said, you know what? Let's go to the big guns. Now, I'm, I have an undergraduate degree in psychology. So I love this. They first went to Dr. Freud and Dr. Freud couldn't see him. And Dr. Freud had two patients, I mean, two students, Alfred Adler and Carl Jung. Alfred Adler didn't have room for him. 
But Carl Jung said, well, we'll try, I'll try to help your son. And it wasn't like, let's just have a consultation on Zoom, right? What happened was they paid during the Great Depression to send their son to Switzerland and, and Roland, Howard, Roland Hazard got to live with Carl Jung. Now I've heard it's two months, I've heard it's six months, I've heard it a year, whatever that is, right? The access he had. And the reason I love that was I thought for years, you know what, the problem is I'm just not properly financed. If I could afford that fancy schmancy like diet program, I could stay abstinent. If I could afford that gym, I could stay abstinent. You know, I, I remember joining this gym and spending this extra money and I got down from with my bulimia, I got down to a decent weight and they actually asked me to, um, to write a, like a, a testimonial. And I, and on this gym, I had a before and after picture propped up there, right? I had arrived, like Bill said. And I remember walking out of that gym one day thinking, Phew, that was a hell of a good workout. And there's a pizza place next door. I said, you know what? I earned that slice of pizza. Well, you know what? Because of that allergy, I was off again, put that weight on. And I was too humiliated to go back to that gym because now I look like the before picture again, right? I mean, I remember thinking, you know, that, that old that show, uh, The Biggest Loser, if I could get Dolvet as a, as, a, as a coach, of course I could stay abstinent, right? So what it says here on that first paragraph on page 26, it says, above all, he, which is Roland, believed he had acquired such a profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind and its hidden springs that relapse was unthinkable. I mean, by God, the amount of money I spend on gyms, and why would I ever eat again? You know, I remember even in OA, there was a book out in the 90s that I have to tell you to this day, I think is the most beautiful description I've ever I've ever seen of, a, of food addiction. And we highlighted it and underlined it and we dog-eared it. And we passed it around the meetings. And I thought to myself, now I understand I am never going to eat again. And let me tell you, I ate again and again and again. And then he come, but he, so at this certain point, Dr. Dr. Young says, okay, I've taught you everything I can teach you. Go home. You can take the, take the planes, trains, and automobiles back to the United States. And he doesn't get past France before someone asks him that awful question. Hello, sir, would you like a drink? How many times did I come out doing really well and somebody would say, hey, you want to go to McDonald's? Or my grandma made this specially for you. And boom, I'm at it again. So he crawls back to Dr. Young, and it doesn't say this from 1930s, but basically it was what to, WTF, what the heck happened, right? And it's telling him here, he told him the whole truth. In the doctor's judgment, he was utterly hopeless. The top of 27, it talks about, you know, the doctor said, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. It doesn't even mention the body. Why? Because he was sober. He was with the doctor sober. He was not picking up because of the food. The reason he picked up is because he has the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I have never seen one single case recover where the state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed on him with a clang. He said to the doctor, is there no exception? Right? God, how many times have I said that? Well, maybe that's the origin of my bulimia. Because let me tell you, when I came into OA, I did not come in to stop eating. I came in for you guys to teach me how to have three Oreos and be okay. And when I was diagnosed morbidly obese, I remember my reaction was, you know what? If you think this is obese, I'll show you obese. And I put on even more weight. 
And then when I really, really wanted to do it, and I was taught bulimia in college, and I thought, I'm going to do this because you know why? I didn't want to give up the food. I just wanted to give up the consequences. I remember being in an AA meeting and this guy said, he's like, I didn't want, you know, when they talk about, you know, the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. He said, I didn't have a desire to stop drinking, but I sure as hell had a desire to stop suffering. And that's what I wanted. I wanted the food and I wanted the consequences going away. And I have to tell you, I did not come into LA morbidly obese. I came into OA after my bulimia and I was down to the size that I thought would make me happy. And I was more terrified than I ever been in my entire life. And I, that's when I crawled into OA at the age of 27. So this paragraph on page 27, that third paragraph, what I'm going to do, there's a famous guys, Joe and Charlie, AA speakers. And when they read this paragraph, they say the word change next to every word that is a synonym for change. So that's how I'm going to read it. So it says, yes, replied the doctor. There is exceptions to such cases as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences change. To me, these occurrences are a phenomena change. They appear to be the nature of huge emotional displacements change and rearrangements change. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side, change. And a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them, change. I have been trying to produce some such emotional rearrangement change within you. So it kind of sounds like we're going to have to change. And if we go back to what we studied last week on page 25, at the top paragraph, there is a solution. Almost none of us liked it now. I'm not, I didn't like doing the steps. First 100 didn't like doing the steps. I'm sure most of the people who are recovered here didn't like doing the steps, but they work. So here's the solution that they talked about, that we talked about last week. The self-searching, which is step four. The leveling of our pride, which is five, six, and seven. And the confession of shortcomings, which is step nine. So what happens is we do the four through nine skill set, which is the solution, and we implement it in 10 and 11 on a daily basis. So in that paragraph we just read, it says ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which are once the guiding forces of these lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side. So let's look at what four through nine does. In steps four and five, we look at our resentments. We look at our fears. We look at our sex conducts and relationships, and they get cast to one side. In six and seven, we identify what are our character defects, that we're selfish, we're dishonest, we're self-seeking, we're frightened, we're inconsiderate, and those get cast to one side. And then in eight and nine, we get rid of the guilt, shame, and remorse of how we've treated others, and that gets cast to one side. And what happens when we get through that process? It says here, a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate us. How does that happen? By practicing 10 and 11 on a daily basis, we get the benefit of that, of that solution. So that's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to change that. That is actually the solution, right? So all the stuff that he learned from Dr. Young, all the diet programs, all the, the, you know, for me, a lot of it was getting the guy, you know, if I get the guy, I'm going to, I'm going to be okay. You know, if I get the job, if I get the, the right zip code, if I get the white picket fence, if I have 2.5 children and I want a golden retriever, I'm going to be okay. 
all that stuff that we think that's going to make us okay. What I have learned from my spiritual work is the reason I'm so frightened is because all the things that I thought was going to make me okay were the exact reasons I felt I didn't feel okay. Because when I got them, it was the fear of losing them. So it was all that material stuff outside did not work. What we're going to learn in, in step two is the deep down inside me is the fundamental idea of God or love or whatever that is for you. When I get access to that, the rest of the world doesn't isn't going to own me anymore. So it says down here in that last paragraph on 27, he said he reflected, after all, he was a good church member. This hope, however, was destroyed by the doctors telling him that while his religious convictions were very good, in this case, they did not spell the necessary vital spiritual experience. My 12 years of Catholic school did not give me any benefit with, when it came to the 12 steps. In fact, my experience is those old ideas of my, of my religion had to be flipped on the lid when it came to work in these 12 steps, that it does not give us any benefit to be a religious person. If, if, if that did, we would never see a priest or a, a nun or a rabbi or a pastor or an imam ever in the rooms of the 12 steps. We see them all the time right? Because I, I have, a, my brain is broken in a certain way. But even beyond that, I said, I was 17 years in a way, I'm in a five-year relapse and I'm being introduced to this big book in a new way. And I'm like, you don't understand. I've done the steps a thousand times. I've done, I was your effing intergroup chair. I was on the region seven board. What the heck are you going to teach me about the 12 steps? But that person explained to me, you're in relapse. How can you say, you know, anything? And what I learned for myself, and this is for me, that I was in a, I was in a disrespecting a 12-step program by treating it like a diet program with group support. I was in a 12-step program, treating it like an, a tool program. It was eight tools back when I started, nine tools now. And, and I'm sure that OA is going to eventually make it 12 tools. I, 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 every year they try to introduce a new tool. But even when I when I say, well, I'm working my program, what I realized now, what I was doing is I was working people's opinions and slogans. And when I realized that I could work this book, and the big thing for me was I was told that I could work the steps to get abstinent or, work, or get abstinent to work the steps. And when I looked at that, I had never done the steps abstinently. So of course I wasn't getting an effect, right? And I... I was surrendered to the fact that I had to be abstinent hundred percent and then work the steps. And let me tell you in the nineties, I had six years of back to back tomorrow. I'm going to have a bagel, but not today. Tomorrow I'm going to have a bagel, but not today. White knuckled going to bed, exhausted abstinence. If you asked me how long I was absent, I could tell you down to the minute. When I did these steps 12 years ago, I've had 12 years of contented abstinence. I have to think about it. How long have you been absent? Kim? Oh, let me do the math because I, it's not, painful. I work a hard program, meaning I work a structured program. I work these steps as the desperation of a drowning woman, but my abstinence becomes effortless. Not that I don't put effort into it. I have black and white abstinence. I have a structured food plan, but doing my food plan is no different than me brushing my teeth in the morning. It's just something I do to take care of myself. And the last thing I'm going to say, is I have a couple of minutes left on page 28, it says made him a free man. And on page 26, it says, this man still lives and is a free man. So I'm going to share my favorite promise on page 100, which says, follow the dictates of a higher power, and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances are. I used to think if I could make my world look a certain way, I'd be okay. 
And what I realize now, if I can be okay in these 12 steps, then my, my outside circumstances don't rock me. Because I want to tell you, with this pandemic and over these last three years, I lost my job that I worked at for 20 years in my company. But because of the pandemic, I was, I'm now I'm working, I was able to apply for a job in that same company, but work remotely in New Jersey for the Atlanta office. And I get to work from home permanently now. My parents coming out of the pandemic were, are not doing well. I had to help them sell the house that I lived in my entire life. And through choreography of God, the house that was next door to me that had been boarded up for five years due to a fire was flipped. And now my parents live next door to me. My dad has Parkinson's, is not doing well. My mom has early dementia, not doing well. I have had to become the power of attorney for both of them. And also my brother, who is 50 years old, who's learning disabled, I had to become his power of attorney. I now do the finances for all of us. I do all the med. And my brother, who's learning disabled, is also a non-compliant diabetic. A lot of medical stuff I have to learn with that. During the pandemic, I had my, my, my two dogs that I, my first two dogs, lost them both within six weeks. I now have a new dog. Today is the gotcha day. I've had my dog now for one year and I just started fostering dogs. And I can tell you that if, if when I, someone says how you're doing and I, if I describe those circumstances, I think to myself, how the hell am I doing so well? You know why I'm doing so well? Because I'm grounded in, in, in the big book. I'm grounded in God, which to me is love. And every day of my working 10, 11 and 12 on a daily basis, I'm able to be useful. I'm able to be peaceful and my abstinence is an afterthought because when I am grounded in these 12 steps, the food doesn't own me. That is what these, this program does. The 12 steps OA does not promise you that you can be abstinent one day at a time, miserable, white knuckling it, going to bed exhausted. What these 12 steps in OA promises you is you work these 12 steps, you no longer will want the food. And you will be doing things that you never thought were possible beforehand. Who would have thought? You think Bill and Bob would have thought? Bill and Bob would have thought that the Zoom meetings that we have today—that I have friends all over the world—when they started that little program in Akron, Ohio. God is so much bigger than anything we could ever think. So thank you guys for letting me share. <laughs>